0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Grant McCarthy, one of the founders of Tidal Ventures, a seed stage focused venture capital fund. We talk to Grant about his track record and his learnings of working for Yahoo up in Asia and investing in internet companies. We talk to him about the current landscape and environment for early stage technology investment in Australia, as well as why investors wanna have this as part of a diversified portfolio. Please remember that this podcast isn't specific or general advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek their own advice prior to making any investments. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did. Grant McCarthy, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you. Grant, perhaps you could kick off as we like to on the podcast with giving a bit of an idea to our listeners as to who you are.
1: Sure, Um, so hi, I'm Grant McCarthy. I'm one of the co-founders of Tidal Ventures. Um, Tidal Ventures is a early stage venture capital fund here in Australia that invests seed first, as we call it into early stage Australian technology, particularly software as a service businesses, and we invest right through their cycle into their later stage series A's, B's, and even then co-investment structures with institutional shareholders as they move towards exit and IPOs. Um, I co-founded the business in 2015 with uh, Murray Bleach. Um, We have three general partners in the firm, myself, Murray, and a gentleman by the name of Wendell
0: Kurman, and 15 staff overall based here in Sydney. Tell me a little bit about Murray Bleach and why he's important or why it's helpful to have him involved in the business.
1: Um, so Murray, Murray's important to the business for, for two core reasons. So I met Murray actually um, back in the uh, about 2011, 12. I was starting my seed investing off my own bat at the time. We didn't have a fund. And I met him, I did the seed round into a company called Society One here in Australia, which is a peer-to-peer lending business and Murray was chairman of it at the time. Um, Murray's background was a, uh, a, a over a decade long career at uh, BT and Macquarie Bank. Um, ended up running Macquarie's uh, infrastructure and overall business in the US for about 10 years and came back to Australia in about 2010 and started doing his own early stage technology investments also. Um, so we partnered up, but what Mars also then did was um, ended up for about a decade in the, um, in the industry, superannuation fund industry here in Australia with IFM as the chair of their IC. And so it brings to title um, a, a pretty unique perspective of while we're investing in really early stage risky assets, um, how you put a proper governance and institutional funds management layer over that process, um, which is a bit unique in the sense of having that capability alongside more operator-led people like myself um, who started their career in the late 90s with a, with a company called Yahoo.
0: And tell me about that background with Yahoo and I'm particularly interested in your experience in Asia.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, so uh, I kind of lucked out early in my career. I was from Newcastle originally and just did my university up there and some years commercial training and then uh, joined the dot-com wave as they call it. Um, In about 98, I think I joined Yahoo here in Sydney. I think it was about 14th employee. Um, uh, the guy that founded Yahoo in Australia and, and South Asia was a gentleman by the name of Tony Four, um, who's actually now our vice chair of, of titles uh, funds management business as well. So I've had a long association with Tony for over sort of 20, 20 years now. Um, and it was a phenomenal experience because early days Yahoo was kind of, I guess, what to some degree Google is now or Facebook is now. It was sort of the the uh, the leader in all things new and internet, digital business-wise for the the web. Um, And we we just got to try and do many different things, both with companies that were our customers, but probably more importantly, that we'd invested in Yahoo, didn't have a venture capital business at the time, but we were leading and investing in really early stage businesses here in Australia and South Asia. Um, First two investments the business made here in Australia was seeking car sales. Um, when they were both very, very, very early um, seed-based businesses, basically. Uh, And then in 2002, I moved up to uh, Singapore with Yahoo and um, had another four years with them up there, five years with them up there across uh, APAC, basically, um, where the remit of the business up there and the investment platform that they had was much larger in the sense of obviously the economies were much larger, but also uh, our investment mandate was across China. Japan, South Korea, uh, Southeast Asia, and India. Um, and they did some phenomenal deals with um, SoftBank in Japan with the Yahoo business there that they listed separately. Um, the business bought 45% of Alibaba at one point in time, um, which ended up the bulk of the value uh, left in Yahoo when they sold it. Um, our Taiwan business was an enormous business. So yeah, it was a phenomenal experience. I was obviously a relatively young guy, but uh, got to work on a lot of the deal teams when they put these businesses uh, into the Yahoo platform. Um,
0: and learnt how to scale these technology businesses. So for some of our younger listeners, is it fair to say that Yahoo was the original Google, and I think they had an opportunity to buy Google. Really, There's good many different around stories
1: around. of Yahoo being able to buy many different businesses yeah. at points in time, yes. Would
0: have, should have, could have. Yep. Old hindsight portfolio would be great. Yep. But is it fair to say that they started off as a search engine, became almost an internet of all things, and ended up as an owner of many different internet assets. Yeah, yeah, it's a fair way to put it. I think you know Yahoo's primary purpose
1: when it first started was as originally a search engine, mm-hmm. um, uh, but then morphed itself fundamentally into a media company. It, mm-hmm. it developed its own obviously primary media assets, whether it was Yahoo Sport or Yahoo News or Yahoo Weather or whatever it might be, as well as tools. So Yahoo Messenger, Yahoo Mail. Um, and, and develop those businesses to aggregate large amounts of audiences uh, and direct them around the internet either to their own media assets or technology products as well as to their partner whether they be invested companies that they would partner with or their customers through their media side um, and you know what we learned through that was you know I guess in two things primarily one was the many different various business models that existed for digital businesses and as you know, digital technologies have proliferated with both businesses and consumers, particularly mobile devices. The broad reach of now those products and services, which are held with social media networks, with Google, with search, etc., um, are just embedded in everyone's everyday life these days, unlike it was back then. Um, but secondly, also how how these businesses could grow from really, really early stage small companies into very large multinational corporations in relatively short periods of time comparatively and
0: historically to other more traditional manufacturing based businesses etc and were there any specific learnings out of you gaining that experience into asia or any things that you thought gee whiz i never thought that would be the case and i I now understand something around asia that i thought that didn't occur to me yeah it's a good question i
1: think um you know all, all markets are very different but the asian markets particularly where um, markets and countries up there often leapfrogged uh, different infrastructure periods, particularly mobile telephony infrastructure mm. periods where you know, no one really went to have ADSL in their homes, et cetera, they went to straight to mobile devices. So I think the biggest things we learned was probably, probably a couple of things. So one was um, uh, ne- ne- never try and predict what consumers are going to do always listen and figure out how the consumers are consuming something and make your bets in behind that. Data wins. Data wins, data first, absolutely. And the second one was, um, particularly because of the nature of you know, fundamental economics as part of countries and their GDP and their ability to spend money as consumers or businesses for that matter, um, the fundamental for all these businesses you still have to get right first is the unit economics of the business and how those unit economics actually scale and change based on the type of economy that you're servicing um, and those things we've learned over the years to the point where you know we understand our australia and the u.s markets particularly have a very different set of unit economics um, which are generally higher basket values or higher propensity for people to subscribe to things versus asian economies which are high 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 volume transactions because of the population base um, but lesser on the unit pricing and lesser on the not necessarily the margin, but the take rate that you might actually Mm. take from a product or service.
0: I've been intrigued by some of the behavioral differences from a place like Japan Mm. versus the rest of Asia and the world, and if I'm right in thinking it was the only place that Facebook had a separate user interface team, et cetera, because the behaviors were so different.
1: Yeah, 100%, yeah. Japan has always been, to a large extent, just like China as well, to some degree, obviously different stages of their economic growth cycles. Yes. But Japan has always been a fundamentally completely different um, market contextually from most other Asian markets. Um, Just not only culturally but consumer behavior because they've always had, generally speaking, a much more uh, persuasion towards use of technology. Mm -hmm. um, And use of technology in many different ways in particularly entertainment
0: space, gaming space, um, video consumption space, et cetera. Yep, sure. Well, tell us about Tidal Ventures. Sure. What, what does it do and how does yep. it do it? And, and what's it in the market raising at the moment? Sure.
1: Um, so Tidal, um, Tidal's formation, as I said, occurred about 2015, 16. Um, and I'd followed a model out of the US from uh, basically when the GFC happened. Um, there was a, a type of venture capital firm that started to uh, you know, uh, build funds over there. And they were called um, operator-led VCs. Um, These were funds that were, yes, had some venture capitalists inside of them from traditional finance and MBA school backgrounds, et cetera. Um, But they actually were started by ex-founders and people that had built technology businesses themselves. Um, So probably one of the most famous is a company called First Round Capital Mm -hmm. over there. Um, and, And the difference between them and I guess some of the incumbent branded VCs of Sequoia and Axel and these kind of guys was that these funds were always relatively small core funds relative to the size of their compatriots. They were in the US, for example, maybe 100 to 150 million in size, Um, but they just kept a really tight discipline around that focus of having one core fund that invested just at seed, and they actually coined the term at the time institutional seed funds because they brought some institutional fund management capability to the fund, Uh, but they were operator led where really what they were trying to help the founder with was not make the same mistakes as they all had as they built their businesses, right? Because as we know, particularly in early stage businesses, um, time and capital are the two most precious resources. So if you can help founders manage their capital better during that cycle and manage the time of which they spend it to get to the results they need to get in order to be attractive to an institutional investor, that's exactly the kind of help they needed. So we didn't feel like in Australia at the time, many funds were, I guess, not so much focused on seed, but focused on building a machine almost or a platform that could do that repeatedly um, with Australian founders fundamentally. And we think we've done a good job at Tidal to date with our first uh, three funds, so first three seed funds, as we Mm -hmm. call them. Um, First one was an $11 million fund, second one a $32 million fund, and now we've just opened up our $80 million seed fund to just focus always seed first and work with those companies to help them get to their first institutional round of capital. Um, we then followed that up as we saw some really early successes out of our first fund, our seed fund one, in companies like Shipit, uh, Frankie One, and Predict HQ, where we saw um, those businesses grow absolutely and were able to raise their Series A and B rounds with institutional investors. Um, But then also saw the uh, the opportunity for us to continue to follow those winners out of those seed funds. Mm -hmm. And we developed our title Follow-On Opportunity Fund, which we launched uh, late last year in 2021.
0: Now, tell me, one one of the things I've read in your material is that you're saying that the Australian technology market or the startup startup market is going through an inflection point. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that and why is it beneficial?
1: so we think about this in two ways. One is we think about it in terms of talent and founder talent. And the second one is we think about it in terms of the, obviously, the investor and capital market side of things. Um, in, in the talent side of the market, if you think, if, if we were just to say, for example, that um, venture capital had its rebirth in Australia around about 2010, 2012, when... Uh, Ricky and Nick at Blackbird started their fund, and Daniel and Craig with Airtree, and Paul Bassett with Squarepeg. Mm-hmm. Were sort of the reiteration of venture capital at the time, um, which had had you know a very hard landing after Topcom, so to speak, and sort of just pl- spluttered along, so to speak, yep. for almost a decade.
0: And then the big super funds in 2015
1: allocated to exactly them. started to allocate to those guys, and a lot of that was driven by the fact we were starting to see founders that weren't fresh founders, but they were second and third time founders either coming back into market to
0: build businesses. A lot of research to show that successful founders are a little bit older and the, the, the sort of Facebook... You know, yep, the, the kid out of the dorm is really the outlier. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but secondly,
1: we also saw a lot of, uh, I guess, the second generation successful digital businesses out of Australia, whether it was that the Atlassians and now the Canvas and mm-hmm. Safety Cultures and Culture Amps and um, Airwallex, et cetera. Uh, a lot of the people that were th- with them really, really early and ended up in relatively senior management kind of roles also spinning out and starting their companies, right? And so they'd obviously learnt um, inside someone else's company, the patterns and the playbooks, for want of a better term, that they went through to build those assets. So we just saw a much deeper talent pool starting to form in this market, Mm -hmm. where it wasn't all first-time founders. Um, And secondly, they, they very much started to better understand what a business needed to look and feel like in the sense of, the strategy, the business, the financials of the business, et cetera, in order to attract that institutional capital. So on the institutional capital side, exactly like you just said, we started to see large institutional capital start to allocate in around 2015-16, which has followed through. And we also saw a a pretty enormous um, move, I guess, some of it pure PR, but some of it deliberate around the corporate sector as well. Um, into venture capital um, with their corporate venture capital firms. Reinventure with Westpac was a good example of that. Combank's done the X15 thing. Mm -hmm. Woolworths with Woolies X has done a fantastic job. So you've just seen this, uh, I guess, for what is still a relatively short period of time, proliferation of capital into this asset class, um, which is still, as an asset class, very, very small um, by comparison to private equity and other alternative asset classes. Um, and is very small on a like-for-like basis with the US, China, or our European um, compatriots in terms of the amount of money in the market for venture capital.
0: Um, but the growth has been extraordinary. So tell me two, two things that I wanna drill into. One, why seed? Mm-hmm. So if you're a wealthy Australian who's had a liquidity event, yep. why should you be allocating to, to seed or early stage venture? So that's one yep. part of it, and then the second part of that is really um, how much of a percentage of a portfolio should somebody be thinking about, and how does that compare around the world? And are, uh, is there too much money for too few deals in Australia? Sure. Okay,
1: let's unpack those those three. So, um, in terms of seed, the reason obviously, like we like seed, is that we um, uh, we think we're pretty good at it because <laughs> we've actually done this many times, not only with our own businesses. For example, Wendell, my other general partner, he was head of product at um, Atlassian for about eight years with Mike and Scott. So very early, built sort of an engineering team up there to about 400 engineers. Um, uh, was basically product lead for Confluence, one of their core products. Um, and so, yeah, we've just we've, we've done this before. It's really hard. Um, it's really hard in the sense of uh, the, the number of moving parts that these businesses have to try and figure out what they prioritise and how they sequence that prioritization of what they're spending their capital and limited resources on. And so we think there's just not a not a not a huge bunch of funds at the moment or people at the moment that are able to do that consistently in the Australian market. So that's why we think we're we're pretty good at it. The other thing is is like when you think about to your point that capital allocation from institutions coming in, a lot of the early guys that were doing seed first up, the amount of capital they're actually managing now has forced them to move up value chain, as we would call it. Like most of them need to be placing their first checks in it. more of a series A kind of round where they're seeing many more proof points around a business to deploy a five, six, seven, eight million dollar check into that kind of stage. So we do think there's a nice white space in that C space, um, but you've got to build an engine to do it repeatedly. Why you should invest in that space is because that's the entry point. Like if you want to maximize your opportunities and returns, and I'm sure many of the other funds would say some of their best returns and best assets have come out of when they've invested early Mm -hmm. into businesses for two reasons. One, uh, not only the the return um, multiple you get on it, but really it's getting access and capturing a part of the cap table at that point in time that if it becomes a great asset, you can maintain as an investor. All right. It's very hard once a winner is You know, a category leader is picked in the market or developed in the market for you to gain access to these businesses. And so getting in early and getting a position in that cap table of a meaningful amount um, is a really valuable opportunity,
0: not only for the fund manager, but for investors as well. Um, And and do you think in Australia there's too much capital at the moment chasing venture? um, Or are there plenty of ideas and great businesses that that aren't getting funded?
1: Yeah, I think The way we think about that, because uh, it's not, I mean, what's interesting about that, it's not just Australian capital chasing great Australian companies these days, right? Yeah. You, you've got a lot of the US funds now running coverage down here. And one of our core strategies always was to get these companies offshore early. We have a full-time person in the US with Title, for example, so we've invested in that market. And I think, you know, 80% of all of our... Uh, institutional rounds, Series A and later, have actually been led and co-led with us by US fund managers, US -hmm. venture capital firms. Um, So it's not just Australian money chasing it, it's US as well. Um, So yes, there is a lot of capital still available to deploy in in the space down here. I I think the way we think about this question of are there enough people generating great businesses and great opportunities, I, I think the answer is simply yes to that in the sense of not so much you know, is there enough of a funnel of talent coming into the market? The answer is absolutely yes, but more so, is there enough opportunity around the transition still of companies and consumers with the way they consume technology to solve problems, yeah. right? And when you think about it, you know, we use this stat often, but like only, only about 25% of computing, right, is still cloud-based. Mm-hmm. The rest is still fundamentally what we would call on-premise. Um, sitting as an application on your desktop computer or whatever it might be or in a server in a rack somewhere and you might have migrated it to a, you know, a a colo facility or something. But most organisations and people haven't still widely adopted cloud computing, right? Um, And so the opportunities for people, smart young people, older people, whatever they might be, to go and uh, create businesses to solve this transition of businesses and consumers to cloud, is still two decades before it's, we think, sort of halfway there.
0: Sure. And Grant, ha- how has all of that gone to date, that strategy since you mm. launched back in 2016? What's the experience been for investors yeah. um, to date?
1: Yeah, so fund one's perform really well. We think it's, uh, you know, uh, benchmark-wise, a top caught fund. We've, um, we're at about 3.6 times uh, on that fund at the moment from a TVPI perspective. Um, Explain TVP. Uh, it's basically your cash on cash returns after after fees. Yes. Right? Um, uh, so that's performed well. We've actually returned some capital to investors out of that. We've returned uh, we've about 70 cents in the dollar out of that fund to date. Um, and we've still got a, a lot of value in that fund to actually release over time. Um, these funds, these seed funds are 10-year funds, basically. Mm-hmm. And we always say to investors, um, you know, let's be very realistic about these. When we get into these businesses, they're very early. And so this is a six to eight year journey with these assets to probably realize full liquidity. Um, And even then, if you're on a really good asset, that's something that, you know, we would talk to investors about and say, is this worth holding? Because the concept of these generational assets as they come through a market, um, they're very rare, right? And so the compounding nature of the returns you can generate off them over the long term are very significant. And that's what we've seen in the US. I mean, you know, we've, mm-hmm. we, we have uh, some fund partners and, and buddies over there that did seed rounds in things like Netflix or Facebook or yeah. LinkedIn or whatever. And so they've held those businesses for 15 and 20 years, so to speak. Um, so, you know, in the sense of, can these, um, uh, can these seed funds repeat sort of, um, I guess the cycle of investing early and getting returns? We think so, our seed fund two is now up at 1.6 times. Um, We haven't done any liquidity on that at the moment. It was only started in the early 2020s, or a bit early. Um, But we're actually just coming through the first cycle of probably doing an M&A transaction with one of the assets. Um, And the other thing that's changed a lot in Australia, because one of the big concerns always was liquidity around venture capital, Mm -hmm. is the the development of secondary markets here in Australia, um, which has developed a lot over the last
0: five years, but particularly in the last two or three. Yes, well, listeners to the show who, who are attuned will be they know all about second quarter and, and BDS exactly. uh, yep. and the developments in that area um, does valuation matter in seed
1: um, it does
0: because it's still a discipline around actually
1: figuring out what the what the right value is for the stage of the business what kind of capital it can responsibly kind of consume um, to develop its business and how that capital is actually going to prove up some of the unit economics in that business to make it more valuable to the next investor when you're getting that next institutional investor in. So, you know, we, we we were pretty disciplined through the last cycle. I think our, I think fund one, our average probably pre-money was around about $8 million or something like that. Um, seed fund two, I think it's probably bumped up to around about $13 million, $14 million, And that's probably part both inflation that occurred in the market over this last period. Um, but also to be fair to most founders, the level of sophistication that they had coming in and the amount of capital they wanted to raise was more. Um, And so, you know, what you're really trying to manage at Seed is a dilution impact to stakeholders in the business at that point in time. And around that 20% dilution, 15 to 20% dilution mark is normally what we see. So dilution, capital in, and valuation sort of all go hand in hand in Seed. Where, you know, we, we, to be frank, were, both, both laughed and almost saddened at some of these $100 million seed rounds that were going off in the US last year for businesses that were literally still on a piece of paper. Um, that, that seemed kind of ridiculous to, <laughs> to us. Yeah. Um, so it does matter, but it's a, it, it, it's a discipline around making sure that everyone's expectations are aligned around what they're doing with the capital, what's going to be the output of that capital for the business and what the stakeholders
0: are happy with from a dilution perspective. and how far progressed does a business have to be for you to invest will you invest in a concept an idea or yeah. do you need to see proof points <coughs> <laughs> Sorry.
1: Um, we're a little later than that so um, we're generally investing in the companies that have um, put product to market um, so they've definitely shown they have a capability to build a product whether that's a minimum viable product or something like a little bit later stage And they definitely have customers with that product. Um, Whether all those customers are paying or not, um, that's another thing, but certainly have customers where they're starting to see the behaviors of how those customers are using the product. Is it a valuable product? Can they prove value to that customer? Are they seeing churn? Are they seeing good usage rates? And are able to start to understand, we can understand some really, really, really early leading indicators around, you know, is
0: this product valuable to solving the problem that the entrepreneur was actually out to solve? Yep. And what sort of areas are you interested in? Is this, mm. like, it seems to me that everywhere in this space, yep. software as a service is what everyone's after. And once they understand and once listeners understand the per unit economics and the yeah. scalability of those style of yeah. businesses, um, you can see why. Um, so yeah. I, I think the way we think about
1: on? it is, um, so we're very focused on the, a business model, right? So software as a service business model, subscription business models. We love businesses, we we almost call them vertical SaaS businesses these days, that are able to get in, create value through the subscribed product that someone's using for Mm -hmm. it, but then have abilities to, in the old days, you used to call it cross-sell, upsell, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But these days, what you're starting to see is these platforms starting to enable transactions for their customers through that platform. So a good example in our portfolio was ShipIt, which has done quite well. Um, you know, people, subs- retailers subscribe to that product in order to manage delivery workflows um, and connect to multiple carriers in order to deliver the best experience to their end customer. Um, but what Shipit's then been able to deliver is different shipping products on that platform. So Shippit is actually able now to take economics out of the delivery itself on top of the workflow system, mm-hmm. right? Very similar to what we see uh, particularly in the US market around things like, well, actually the guys that have done it fantastically are Zero, right? You subscribe to Xero for $29, $39, $49 a month, depending on what kind of business you are. And then all of these, whether it be out of their marketplace or other services that they attach, that you can clip as part of your ongoing accounts process.
0: And Grant, are there any areas of the market that you will not do or types of businesses that are just outside, outside. of your expertise or?
1: Yeah, there's a, couple, there's a couple of areas. I mean, generally we don't touch anything in the biotech space. Um, we might look at um, health and medical areas when it comes to different software practice systems, et cetera. Um, but in terms of you know, the development of um, actual medicines or um, hardware within those markets, that's not something we generally touch. Hardware itself is something that we tend to not do so much of just because of the development times and the iteration times it takes around those kinds of products. That's not to say um, we haven't. We haven't, um, we have invested in some products that have hardware as the the enablement tool for the software system itself, Um, but pure play hardware systems is not something that we tend to spend all time on. and I guess probably the only other area is um, we, we, and this has evolved over the time, uh, products that tend to be very, very heavily enterprise sales-led. So if you think about, in I don't know, in this world, that'd be like uh, a core banking system, mm-hmm. <laughs> for example. That's a that's a behemoth of a piece of software and technology. Um, it's not something someone gets online and wants to search and find core banking systems and signs up for, so to speak. Um, so we tend to stick away things, uh, stick away from things that aren't ab- enabled through a go-to-market approach that's either product sales-led um, or marketing sales-led from that perspective, right? There's got to be pretty clear market opportunities that are quite
0: broad and wide um, from, from a global perspective. And talk to us a little bit about the funds that you're launching at the moment and yep. why you've decided on those funds?
1: Yeah, so there's two funds at the moment. Um, as I said, Seed Fund 3, the targets of an $80 million fund. Um, we think our timing on this is actually um, pretty interesting in the sense of um, uh, there's some great data out there about the uh, the best performing vi- uh, venture vintages over over the last decades. Um, and the three best vintages to date have been Post.com, Post GFC and Post. 2012, basically. Yep. And that just so happens to align when markets have been off from a valuation perspective. And there's been, you know, significant, I guess, um, uh, economic
0: realignment within markets, right? So you've seen valuations drop, like obviously, we've talked about on this podcast, Canva yeah. having sure. pressure on it at 33% down, what are you yeah. seeing in the markets? Yeah, 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 definitely.
1: So de- I mean, it's three segments. So definitely the The very late stage market that was heading into IPO, which is now shut up at the moment, obviously. Um, People are, you know, that is a product and looking at that relative to a listed comparable, um, you can't hide from the fact that the listed markets are off quite significantly, and so that's gonna impact those businesses quite materially. I think in that uh, first, second institutional round of sort of series A through to series C, um, we've seen more what we would call um, multiple compression in that space, so from a comparables perspective, mm-hmm. um, normally you're valuing these things on a multiple of annual recurring revenue and a bunch of sort of metrics go into that, but we're certainly seeing compression there. Um, I think what everyone's not really sure of at the moment, and this is more coming out of the US, whether it's just gonna mean a multiple re- re- compression on ARR or whether it'll actually move to uh, a multiple back on an, a more of an earnings adjusted basis for mm-hmm. these technology companies, right? So there's still a, still a gap in that space. At the seed stage, we're definitely seeing it come back a bit, but I think to your point, I mean, when you're talking about an entry price of whether it's a pre of eight or a pre of 13 or 15 or that kind of thing, it's not on a percentage basis, it's a large amount, but it's not a significant amount in the sense of what that asset could be worth. Um, and so we're seeing probably not so much around value, but what we are seeing is the, the, the first request or, or meet that we were seeing from founders, probably over the last two years normally started with here's the problem I'm solving, here's my pitch deck, I'm raising five at 20,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, we're seeing far less of that, um, because people are just like, we know that capital's not available at the moment for a straight idea, and that amount of capital at that valuation. And the other fund that you're launching- Yeah, the and the second for... one, um, so it's our follow on opportunity fund. The target on that fund's 120. We've actually seeded that and done a soft close on that already of just 20 million dollars. We wanted to put some of our earlier successful assets uh, into that fund, where we've had LPs come into that so already. What
0: sort of names would they be? Frankie One. Yeah, Ship Frankie it.
1: One, Ship It, Secure Code Warrior. Um, uh, we've got another one called Predict HQ that came out of New Zealand, uh, and we've got another one that was actually a, a new deal we did called LifeLens. Um, it's a it's a uh, automation business for um, restaurant and hospitality businesses to manage employee cost base through their rostering systems automatically. Um, uh, and that, the strategy on that fund is really, yes, to invest in the winners coming out of our seed funds, but often we do miss stuff at seed, whether it was timing, whether it was valuation. Um, but if we've you know, continue to work with the founders, often we do still sit on advisory committees with them or product councils and those kind of things. And we've stayed close to them, and they then come through that cycle and raise their institutional capital. We're normally able to get access to uh, to an opportunity to invest at that point in time. So LifeLens was an example of that. Um, so those assets are in there, um, and yeah, we've still got a, you know still a long way to go in raising that capital. But um, we think between those two, the balance and what we're seeing with most, particularly family offices and high net worth and sophisticated investors. Those that have already had a strategy in venture, and they might have had an early stage strategy and understand sort of the risks associated with it, et cetera, going back to your question before, they're probably allocating more on like a 50-50 basis between the funds. They'll say, yes, I like early stage, I know the return profiles it gives me, and I like getting in early. Um, They'll provide an allocation to us, and they'll write 50 cents into that fund, but I also want to follow the winners because I know from a capital, almost not pure preservation, but from a, um, a, a risk um, diversity point of view, um, that's a safer bet for me also. Whereas people that have been, um, I guess there's two types we've generally found in the market. Some that have done some of their own super early stage stuff and generally it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, or B, just you know, are still very aware these are very early businesses. Um, then they'll normally allocate about 75% to the follow on fund and 25% to the early stage fund. So they start to learn and get a taste for it. And we've seen this over our fund cycles. We've had many people come into our first fund um, that put a very small allocation in, um, but then double down in the second fund and a double a downing again in the, in the third fund.
0: Well, terrific. I think that's been a, a great overview for our listeners of, of this area. Um, good luck with these new funds. I'll Thank leave you. you with the last say. Yes. Um, if, if you want to raise any other points, uh, now now's your opportunity with our listeners.
1: Thank you. Um, no, I, I, I think the main thing is the questions we still get generally asked is like, is this technology thing sustainable? Because people hear the daily noise in the market, um, particularly from the public markets. Um, and all we say is, is from a from a growth asset perspective, what are the areas in a portfolio that you can invest in that still have, from the perspective of businesses and consumers spending more of their net worth or their capital on? Technology is that asset class that still has many, many, many decades to run. It's still the thing that will solve problems in the world. Um, And so, you know, it, it is probably still the only core growth asset out there across multiple industry segments that you can get exposure for over the next couple of decades.
0: Terrific. Grant, thank you very much for your time. Thanks thank you, David. for joining us Inside the Rope.
1: Pleasure, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.